Take a copy of the Bible. If you don't, if you didn't bring one with you, there should be a hardback ESV Bible in the a chair in front of you or near you. And we're going to be in the book of First Peter today. And in that hardback ESV Bible, that is on page 1014. There's a lot of pages in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. So 1014, uh, or you can avail yourself of the table of contents if you're not familiar with how to find it near the end of the Bible. First Peter. There are few things in life as debilitating as living without hope. When the light is gone, when a person believes he knows the ending of his story and the ending is tragic, when hope is abandoned, life becomes virtually unbearable. Consider for a moment those who have been legally sentenced to death and who reside on death row. The typical death row inmate spends upwards of 10 years awaiting his execution, sometimes more than 20. One article I read says that death row inmates are, quote, are generally isolated from other prisoners, excluded from prison educational and employment programs, and sharply restricted in terms of visitation and exercise, spending as many as 23 hours a day alone in their cells. Add to these miserable conditions the painfully slow march of time toward the fateful day of execution, and how sometimes the scheduled execution is unexpectedly delayed so that even a certain knowledge of when the painful isolation will end eludes them, and the agonizing hopelessness of the situation slowly drives people insane. They call it death row syndrome. Life without hope is un. Bearable. The human spirit simply cannot survive in the absence of hope. Now, I doubt anyone in this room is in a situation that's quite as stark and hopeless as that of a death row inmate. It's an extreme example, to be sure. But I'm willing to bet, at varying levels, you have experienced hopelessness. You've awaited good news that never came. You've suffered through a treasured relationship falling apart, wondering if there was any hope of reconciliation. You've watched a loved one deteriorate and die, clinging feverishly to the hope that seemed to slip through your fingers like sand. Perhaps you've been so aware of your own sin and brokenness that the idea of God forgiving you, accepting you, loving you seems too absurd to even think about. And so the hope of redemption seems outside of your grasp. Maybe you're in that place right now, today. Whatever situation you find yourself in, maybe hope has eluded you and you're fighting for every breath, for every trip out of bed and down the hall, for every next step. Sometimes life in a fallen world feels like this. Friend, I've got good news for you today. 
God sees your brokenness. He sees your despair, and he has made provision for you. He has acted to provide hope. You see, Easter is where the power and love of God meet us at the deepest point of our brokenness and forge a pathway toward restoration and wholeness that only he can provide. And that resurrection grace is available today. If you're feeling hopeless about something in your life today, Easter is really good news for you because in Jesus' triumph over death, he has provided resurrection grace to restore our hope. In order to illustrate this and, and sort of celebrate it together, we're going to look together at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus and really the primary leader of the Christian movement in that first generation after Jesus ascended to heaven, writes this letter to struggling, suffering, beleaguered Christians who are scattered around the world. And indeed, you'll see that reality reflected in the very paragraph that we're going to read today. But he writes to point their eyes, to, to set their hope on certain fixed realities that cannot be changed no matter what they face in life. And it's all about hope. It's the anchor of hope. I'm going to read for you verses 3 through 9, and I am going to ask if you're able to stand with me in honor of the Word of God. I'll read verses 3 through 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll walk through these verses together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God bless this reading of his word. Let's have our seats. Easter is all about a living hope. Peter begins these verses by just praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were to look at this passage in, uh, in Greek, you would recognize this is one long, crazy, run-on sentence. Verses 3 through 9 is just clause after clause after clause. Peter just gets lost in exuberant praise to God. It just goes and goes and goes. So thankfully, our English translators have provided us some commas and some periods and things to help us make sense of what's going on. 
but it is just effusive worship going on from the Apostle Peter here. Blessed be the God and Father. In other words, God be praised. We ought to praise him because of all that he is doing, all the good news that he's about to unveil to his readers, the salvation stored up for us that's been secured by God's plan and work. Praise God. And then he says, the second sentence there in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. We're going to stop right there. He's caused us to be born again. Now, you often probably hear Christians speak of being born again Christians. It's even a category in big national surveys. People identify themselves as born again Christians. And maybe we sometimes think that just means I believe certain things and therefore I'm, I'm a born-again Christian. But this is a spiritual reality. This is something that happens to you by God's divine activity. He caused you to be born again. Who among you uh, had much of a part to play in your own birth? Right? Uh, did, did you tell your mom and dad what day you'd like to have as your birthday? Hey, please don't make it Christmas because that gets really confusing and there's only one day of the year that I get gifts and that's, that's really kind of a bummer. Right? Did you get to make any requests about where you live or about your eye color or your hair color or how tall you'd be? Okay, when I'm born, please make sure that I have the right genes to make me tall because I don't, I don't want to be short, right? Did anybody have any say in that when you were born? Of course not. Someone else caused you to be born. That's the way that birth works. And the spiritual birth is the same way in our spiritual lives. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and a standing with God by faith, you have God himself to thank for that because he, by his spirit, has caused you to be born again. From start to finish, it's all his doing. Your faith is a gift from God to enable you to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. God has caused us to be born again. So the fact that we're in the faith, praise God that we're in the faith. He's caused us to be born again. So we praise God for this. Now, what have we been born again to? And that's where the crux of the matter lies. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope. Now, what does that mean? Is this hope just sort of a doe-eyed optimism? Have we been caused to be born again by the Spirit of God so that we'll all just be eternal optimists? Should Christians just be a walking encyclopedia of happy-sounding cliches? The glass is not half full, it's, or half empty, it's, it's half full. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Reach for the moon, because even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. That was a poster in my high school hallway. I was always deeply inspired by that. Now, I don't mean to be too down on optimism. I'm generally a pretty optimistic person, and I don't, I don't think optimism is bad. But I think that's often how we think about hope. I hope this will work out. I expect things are going to go okay, right? But that is manifestly not the kind of hope that Peter is telling us about here. This is not just wishful thinking. We have not been born again to an attitude of, man, I hope there's something good that happens after I die. That's not what we've been born again to. We have been born again to a living hope. That is a settled confidence, an assurance of something that God has promised and provided. There is a settled, certain 
confidence that Christians carry because of what God has wrought miraculously in our lives. And this rebirth is better than just a new start. Sometimes we talk about that, like in Christ you can have a new start. And that's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. What we have in Christ is not just a new start. We have a guaranteed finish. He's going to carry us all the way there. We sang it earlier. I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. It's not just a new start. It's a guaranteed finish. It's better than a second chance, right? Because its outcome is sure. If you give somebody a second chance, even by the language you're using, you're implying they might or might not make it, right? We hope that they do okay, and we're going to give you a second chance, but it's very possible that a month from now you're going to fall down again and we're going to be back in the same place. The gospel is not a second chance. The gospel is a settled, certain outcome. It's not chance at all. So we've been born again to a living hope. That is a settled, steady assurance that what God has promised us, he will provide. Where he's told us he will take us, he will surely take us. That's the kind of hope that we have in Christ. Why do we have that hope? Well, he's caused us to be born again to this hope, but how has it been purchased for us? Look at the very next phrase. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, this living hope is all because of Easter. That's what we celebrate on this day. That's why it's a big deal. This is where our hope was born. This is where we hang all our hope. We all know this world is broken. Far too often things don't work out the way that we dream. Doors close. Relationships crumble. Bodies fail. Friends let us down. Our sense of safety erodes in light of violence surrounding us. There's no shortage of stories with tragic endings in our world and in our own lives. But it occurs to me that even though we know and experience such brokenness, the eyes of faith refuse to see a lost cause. No closed door is the last possible opportunity. No relationship is so broken that it can't be repaired. No sinner is beyond the reach of grace and redemption through the gospel. Even the sickness that ends a life doesn't have the final word for the Jesus follower. There's always life on the other side of it. Praise God for this living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to this settled assurance that what he's promised, he will do. So there's three particular ways that I want to point out to you from this passage that Easter can change your life. How does this living hope work itself out? There's three things. Number one, it secures an imperishable inheritance. It secures an imperishable inheritance. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. You've been born again to a living hope. 2, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept 
in heaven for you. I want to hang out on that phrase for just a minute. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That doesn't, just, that doesn't mean it's kept from you. That means it's protected for you. That means God is guarding your inheritance. What he has promised to provide you in the last days at the end of human history when his kingdom is finally and fully established and we're with him in his new creation forever, the experience of life and fullness and joy that he's promised you, he is guarding it. He is keeping it for you. And he says it's being guarded for you for a salvation, verse 5, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is holding on to this inheritance for now. God is guarding it, protecting it, keeping it safe so that when you reach that point, it's ready for you. He will present it to you. It's ready to be revealed in the last time. I kind of get the picture of like a mom who has purchased the perfect Christmas present for her child and she's wrapped it beautifully and she's kept it hidden and secure and she's plotted how he's going to find the package and she's taking video of him when he opens it so she can replay the joy on his face when he opens it. I think this is how our Heavenly Father feels about the gift that he's preparing for us. He is ready. He's guarded it. He's got it wrapped. He is so eager for the moment when we finally walk into eternity and experience it in its fullness. He's got the video camera rolling. Look at what they're doing. Look at this experience, right? This is what God is doing with his inheritance that he has prepared for you. Well, what's this gift like? What, is, what, are, what are the characteristics of this inheritance? Well, verse 4 told us that it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. One theologian summarizes those three phrases like this. Untouched by death, unstained by sin, and unimpaired by time. What in your life could you possibly describe like that? When's the last time you got a gift that didn't go bad? A toy that didn't break. A shirt that still fits perfectly. Socks that don't already have holes in them. A concert or sports event or a trip whose memory hasn't already begun to fade. That's the nature of life in this world. But the nature of the inheritance, the nature of the life we'll experience in eternity in his new creation is totally different. It doesn't ever fade with time. It's not marked or stained by sin and brokenness. There's no guilt or sort of weird feelings about, should I accept this gift or not? Or now I'm going to be obligated to give something back? Or if I re-gift this to somebody, are they going to find out that I did that later? None of those things exist with the inheritance that God is keeping for you. It's never going to fade. That is the inheritance that belongs to every saint. The salvation being kept by God and ready to be revealed. And it's sure and true because of Easter. Because Jesus is alive. If Jesus were still in a grave in Jerusalem, this in, these promises of inheritance would sound pretty empty. But Jesus is living, and he always lives, so he can do this. He can guard this. He can keep 
this inheritance. He can walk with us through our hardships and make sure that we make it safely there. How have we been born again to this living hope? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Easter means that the ending of your story, if you're a follower of Jesus, will be beautiful and glorious and good beyond your wildest imagination. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And on Easter Sunday, some 2,000 years ago, it happened. Jesus dealt death the mortal wound and obtained for us an eternal home with him. Easter secures an imperishable inheritance. But lest we think that the living hope of Easter doesn't have anything to offer until we die. Okay, great, I've signed the the card, I checked the box, I believe in Jesus, and now someday after my life is over, I'll get this good stuff in heaven. Lest we think that's all that this is, and there's nothing that comes into our lives right now because of the living hope of Easter, Peter talks to us in verses 6 and 7 about a new reality. Look at this. In this, in this inheritance, in this salvation, in this you rejoice, though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Oh no. Here's where it gets real. This is the stuff we don't like about living in a fallen world. But it's obvious reality. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The living hope of Easter provides endurance in suffering. Here's point two if you're taking notes. The living hope of Easter provides endurance in suffering. Now much of the suffering of Peter's readers in this first century was due to targeted persecution of the Christian church. As they faithfully spoke of Christ and lived out kingdom values, the pagan culture in which they were situated responded with hostility. Now, in our place and time, this kind of persecution is less pronounced, both because American Christians have often displayed what Scott McKnight has called a lack of nerve to challenge our contemporary world with the message of the cross, and because our culture's hostility toward Christianity hasn't quite reached the pitch that it had in the first century. You could argue that it's on the rise. We're seeing evidences of that hostility around us, but we're not at the same level yet. Nobody's being dragged to prison or burned alive or fed to lions because you proclaim Christ. We're not there yet. However, I think the same encouragement about enduring these sufferings can be applied to the suffering and hardships we face just because we live in a fallen world. Indeed, Peter says his readers have been grieved by various trials, which seems to indicate more suffering than only direct persecution is in view here. So in other words, life in a fallen world, surrounded by sinners and wrestling with sin inside of us, is hard. It hurts. It has a way of squeezing out our hope and turning us into cynics and skeptics. But God is doing something in the midst of this suffering. God's building something in us that indeed will make the experience of the inheritance all the richer. Look at verse 7 again. 
So that, that's the purpose for the sufferings. So good to know that God has purposes in these things, isn't it? You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, skipping the next clause, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the suffering we go through is akin to the process of refining gold where they put it through this blazing fire and all of its impurities burn off. And so what comes out the other end of this fire is unadulterated, pure gold, which was the most valuable known substance at the time that Peter wrote this. And our suffering has that effect in our lives. We go through suffering to force us away from the stuff we're tempted to cling to that isn't him and force us to rely on him and him only. And to remember, I am frail and feeble and weak and fallen, and he has everything that I need, I'd better lean on him. So when we go through the suffering and we come out the other side, what's there is a purer faith, a genuine faith. And that, says Peter, is more precious than gold. Why? Because it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus, we will be glad that our faith is purer and we are more prepared to meet him. We won't say, could you have made this a little easier for me? We will be glad that he has used every bit of suffering and struggle and hardship in our life to shape us into who he wants us to be, indeed, to walk the path that he himself walked. Because you probably remember, Easter didn't happen before there was Good Friday. The glory and joy and hope of resurrection first has to go through the suffering and the shadow and the bleakness of crucifixion. And that's our path as well, who follow Jesus. The famed New Yorker writer, Catherine S. White, spent every fall in her garden meticulously planting bulbs, preparing them for their blossoming in spring. Even as she aged, she still did this every year, wanting these plants to bloom, even after she had passed on. Some years went by, and after Catherine's death, her husband, E.B. White, himself an accomplished and well-known author, wrote this of Catherine's gardening habit in her waning years. As the years went by and age overtook her, there was something comical yet touching in her bedraggled appearance on this awesome occasion. The small hunched-over figure, her studied absorption, and the implausible notion that there would be yet another spring oblivious to the ending of her own days, which she knew perfectly well was near at hand, sitting there with her detailed chart under those dark skies in the dying October, calmly plotting the resurrection. He said, he went on to say, Catherine was a member of the resurrection conspiracy, the company of those who plant seeds of hope under the dark skies of grief and oppression. That's exactly what Christians should be. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we can be confident that, implausible as it may seem, there will be yet another spring. The winter that I'm enduring now is not all that there is. 
Where are you tempted to despair? To believe you know the ending of your story and you've let your hope fade. Where in your life do you need to apply the living hope of Easter? What obstacles or trials do you believe you can never overcome? And how might a confident faith in the overcoming grace of the risen living Savior change your outlook on those areas where despair has crept in? The living hope of Easter provides endurance in suffering. And the final way that I think we see in these verses that the living hope of Easter makes a difference for us is that it fuels our love for Jesus. The living hope of Easter fuels our love for him. Verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, just historically, remember Peter is writing to second generation Christians here. So Jesus would have already been raised from the dead and then after 40 days ascended to heaven. And so now these are people who have been converted to the faith through the witness of and preaching of the apostles and their associates. So these are people who are coming to faith in Christ but who hadn't themselves seen Jesus. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And this sounds just a little bit crazy, doesn't it? How can you possibly love someone that you can't even see? Well, there's a couple of ways to answer the question. For one thing, it's better to believe than to see. And if that sounds strange, I'm just quoting Jesus. Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, 29, Thomas, we call him doubting Thomas. This guy gets a bad rap, but I'd probably be exactly the same way if I were there. When Thomas said, I won't believe it until I can see it, until I can touch his wounds, right? So Jesus graciously shows up and says, here I am, put your hand here, and Thomas falls down, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, you believe because you've seen, but I say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's better to believe in him without seeing him. I remember a friend of mine in Maryland that we were... Uh, serving and, and preaching the gospel to regularly, he was blown away by this because he would always say when we were talking about Jesus and the gospels and kind of how to know him, he would say, you know, if Jesus would just like show up just one day, just walk in and let me see him, I'd, I'd believe immediately. I'd take, I'd, all these conversations would be unnecessary. Oh, absolutely, there he is. And I pointed him to these words. I said, actually, Jesus said it's better to believe in him without having seen him. And he was like, just couldn't, couldn't get his mind around that. Like, that's amazing. Well, that's just Jesus, all right? It's better to believe when you haven't seen, right? There's blessing in that, he says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And he told, Jesus told his disciples a little bit earlier, just before the crucifixion, that he would be going away, right? He's like warning them, preparing them. I'm going back to my father. But he said to them, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, I will send you a helper. Who's that? The Holy Spirit, who now indwells his people. Jesus can be there next to us, but the Holy Spirit can be in us, and in me, and in you, and in you, and in him, and in her, all at the same time. It's to your advantage that I go away. So at some level, it's actually better 
There's more blessing to believe upon Jesus when we haven't seen him. That's maybe one answer to this question. How can you possibly love someone that you haven't seen? Well, Jesus said that that's actually more blessed. There's advantage to that. But here's another way to answer the question. If you know what to look for, you can see Jesus and his resurrection life everywhere. In every marriage that journeys to the brink of collapse and returns to life through forgiveness and love. Who's that? In every addict who finds freedom from his bondage. Whose work are we witnessing? In every single mom who somehow manages to keep her kids fed and clothed and in school while she works to provide a place to stay. Even in the winter frozen earth as it absorbs the rains of early spring and starts to return to life again. Who are we seeing? We're seeing Jesus and his resurrection all over the place. And the more you see him, the more you love him. So let me ask, where do you see him? Look around you. Look around your life, your family, your friends, your neighborhood, your church, your world. Where can you see Jesus at work? Where can you spot glimpses of the resurrection in your life? So as we witness his work and we get to know him, we come to love him more and more because he's alive and he's at work within us and among us and around us. And so our love for him grows. And all of this, in verse 9, the upshot of this whole thing is obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. That's the goal of all of this, is that we would be saved, rescued from our plight, our brokenness, our sin and destruction, and given a new and eternal, lasting life and hope. And through this, through enduring these sufferings and, and purifying our faith, and, and through witnessing Jesus at work in us and in our families and our community and all around us and coming to love him more, eventually we obtain the outcome of our faith, the saving, the salvation of our souls. Listen, faith is hard. There's no question. Cynicism is easy. Bitterness is easy. Doubt and unbelief, easy. It's not always the most natural thing to believe to believe what we can't see, to cling to an invisible hope. It's not only hard, it seems totally crazy to those who don't have eyes to see. You're aware, I'm sure, that the world thinks we're completely bananas for believing this stuff. I know that. You know that. But I'm kind of okay with that. I'm okay with looking a little crazy or foolish if it means that when the last time gets here and Jesus reveals himself again in the flesh, I'll obtain the outcome of my faith, the salvation of my soul. If what I got to endure is I look a little crazy for a while, cool. Sign me up because I want that. It's worth it. It's worth enduring the seasons of suffering. It's worth fighting for a perspective that's trained on resurrection because it leads to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance 
in the glorious presence of God. And this hope is available to anyone who will repent of their sins and trust on Christ. He causes us to be born again, but how do you know if you're born again? Well, you start to feel kind of interested in the things of God and curious about the Bible. How, I would like to learn more about Jesus. You start to become aware of junk in your own life that feels wrong somehow. This doesn't feel right. There's something I'm doing or something I'm looking at or something I'm thinking and desiring that just feels wrong and I don't know why. And you start to want a solution to that. And as you're looking in the Bible and you're talking to Christians and you're hearing more about Jesus, you start to think, I, I think he's the answer. I think he's what I need. I think what he did in his life and death and resurrection actually somehow paid for all of this. How do you know you've been born again? Goodness, you're trusting in Christ. You're repenting of sin. You're looking to him, and you desire to please him. If that describes you, you wouldn't have said that you're a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, but those things are going on in your mind and heart. Friend, you're this close. Reach out by faith and claim what he's offering. Trust in Christ. If you're not sure how to do that, talk to any one of dozens of, pe of people around this room and they would be thrilled to walk you to the feet of Jesus. Well, I'm going to close this message by reading to you from the book of Revelation. That might sound a little bit disjointed. But the reason for that is I want you to see the great glorious vision that God gave the apostle John that depicts this glorious kingdom of God in its fullness, the final state of the universe where all of this is headed. So I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 21 and 22, not all of it, just portions of each of those chapters. And I want to challenge you to dare to believe that this is real. To dare to believe that Jesus has truly risen from the dead and that his resurrection has truly secured for you an inheritance that will never fade. And it looks something like this. Revelation 21, I'm going to read the first seven verses and then we'll skip ahead to the beginning of chapter 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then to verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the living hope of Easter. And it's yours if you'll trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, we praise you that you have caused us to be born again to this living hope. And we plead with you to give us eyes to see. Teach us to look with eyes of faith to see the resurrection life of Jesus within us and around us that our love for him might grow, that our endurance for seasons of hardship and suffering might be strengthened, and that in every way our lives would be a living testimony to the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead and that works in us right now. Teach us to live by hope and to extend that hope to those who need it. Be glorified in us, we pray, even as we continue in our worship. Fix our eyes upon you. Settle our hearts in Christ. May we experience the reality of this living hope for Christ's sake. In his name we pray. Amen.